This podcast is part of the Game and Entertainment Network. Visit tgenetwork.net to find the latest episodes from all our shows. You're listening to Contains Moderate Peril, an independent podcast about games, movies, and popular culture. Written and presented by Roger Edwards. Hello again, I'm Roger Edwards and you're listening to the Contains Moderate Peril podcast, episode number 175, back again after a short hiatus. I am joined on this show by Braxwolf. Hello. And Sean. Hello. Regular listeners will be more than aware of my guests' illustrious podcasting and blogging credentials. Coming up on this episode of Contains Moderate Peril. The average gamer is allegedly 31 years old. However, are they still the demographic that game developers exclusively cater for? Is it time for the movie industry to finally embrace same-day release across multiple platforms? And are you an early adopter who likes to pre-order games, or do you prefer to buy the Game of the Year edition 12 months later and make a saving? Interesting questions, I'm sure you'll agree. So, without further ado, let's dive right in. We are frequently told by the gaming press and the internet commentariat that the average age of a gamer at the moment is somewhere in their 30s and this is a gamer that has grown up and worked their way through consoles you know the early ones and are now either on you know the latest generation or their pc gaming and they are a mature person in employment with an income at their disposal that keeps them in the games that they like and that by and large i think a lot of people are happy to say yeah sure and they look around at their circle of friends and broadly agree with that but then you have to remember that people in their 30s have probably got families and they have children and those children are brought up in a world where they see their parents play games and they might not necessarily grow up and experience gaming in exactly the same way as their parents their tastes and expectations might be subtly different and it begs the questions are games now being specifically targeted for this alleged 30 plus mature gamer group of individuals or is it a question now that the industry is now looking and focusing more on their children and thinking let's offer them things let's offer them things that their parents don't like because they are stuck in their ways anybody got any thoughts on that i think it makes sense you note the demographic when you when you talk about being in your early 30s. Not only do you have children in your early 30s, but usually it's young children. Usually it's it's pretty pretty small children. So you're constantly. I, I can remember being there. You're constantly interrupted. I mean, no matter what you're doing, you're, you're you could be going to the bathroom, whatever. You're going to be interrupted. So you know these these games that require a lot of intense concentration and large blocks of time and. Um, I study even I think those those are kind of out when you're in that age range of having only short blocks of time to spend you know playing a video game of a night or even during the day you know if you happen to have a day off you're still going to be interrupted so it would make sense to me that uh, 
some of these, I don't know what you want to call them, like Overwatch, shorter term, uh, popcorn games maybe, as some people have used that term. Uh-huh. Quick fix games. Quick fix games would be a little bit more conducive to, to somebody in that life situation. Well, uh, I was trying to think, what do you suppose is the maturest market in terms of games? And I was thinking it probably is MMOs, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And they're probably designed for the oldest age range of players. Like, I remember when I played EVE Online, I think the average age of people in EVE was in their mid-30s. Uh, whereas, imagine World of Warcraft probably would have had a slightly lower age at the time. But I imagine that their average demographic now is probably in their 30s and 40s. But I suppose the answer is probably, as it always is for me, really, is... We're blessed at the moment with a multitude of different video game markets, almost. So I think you see a much mature... Uh, mature is a bad word because that implies, I don't know, that it's, uh, that, it, that it's better in some way. Not mature. I mean, targeted at an older demographic. Mm-hmm. PC games are definitely targeted at an older demographic. You know, you see far more um, historical simulators based on 16th century trade on the PC than you would on a console. Funny that. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I suspect if you speak to most kids, and I do often, my experience is that they tend to play the, you know, the big AAA console games of the day, really. The Uncharted's and the Assassin's Creed's and the Destinies and, and Skyrim's and things of that sort. I, when I'm trawling through Steam, will habitually come across titles that I am flummoxed by because I'm a a terrible curmudgeonly old person who's very, very blinkered and set in their ways. And I like certain games, certain genres of games. I like my games to look sexy. And I've got a long list of things that are an anathema to me. And yet you go through Steam and you just think, wow, is that actually a game? And then you read about it. And you suddenly think well, that's more of an interactive narrative or that's more of a sort of a far more social sort of game than what I'm used to playing. And, and I, I continuously see products that flummox me, as I say, and then I've suddenly realised that they're clearly not aimed at me. I mean, one today that I was reading about that's fascinated me. And then I like to see if any of my groups of friends on Steam actually own the game. I was it keep talking and no one explodes. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, um, which seems to be a sort of bomb defusal game, but it's it's very much a question of it's multiplayer and it's it's a team effort to actually defuse the bomb, and it, it seemed to be fifty percent gaming and then fifty percent like sitting around like a like a physical board game. Yeah, it's almost like a parlor game, isn't it? Yes, there, there's an interesting phrase, parlor game, and again, it just shows that someone's had a great idea. It seems to be popular. It's got traction. And, again, something it wouldn't even cross my mind to sort of buy. And that then brings me back to, my, to this sort of question, are the 30-plus people losing their luster as far as game developers because we're so set in our ways? We are a little bit tunnel-visioned where you can come up with something really left field and the younger generation because they haven't grown up with gaming in the linear fashion that we have they've just been born into a world where it's there they they readily accept these these more experimental and off the wall sort of products 
Yeah, that last point is really an interesting one to me, Roger, because I'm, I'm kind of the same way as you. I, I look for – I'm not the kind of person that complains about the next Assassin's Creed um, game coming out because I know that it's going to be just like the last one that I enjoyed that was like the last one that I enjoyed that was like the last one that I enjoyed. <laughs> but, but I think that there is certainly something to what you've said there is that, you know, kids who have not grown up with that same type of expectation around gaming may be looking for – something different or maybe maybe they don't know what that they're looking for something different it just shows up or maybe like generations tend to do they look at assassin's creed as their dad's video game and yeah you know i i i'm not going to look into that because if my dad likes it it can't be cool you know um i certainly have a lot of that going on in my house so i understand that that deep feeling you know i think one of the big shifts in expectation that a younger generation must be experiencing is in terms of what they expect from a monetization plan for a game because free to play and microtransactions is still a relatively new concept to our generation of video game players whereas a younger generation would have grown up with free to play transactions at their fingertips from maybe the time they're a toddler and of course you know that's going to radically alter the nature of how video game content is sold Yes, I have my likes and dislikes about the monetization of games. And if something offends me, then I, I won't buy it. Or I'll at least wait 12 months and then pick up the Game of the Year edition that then has all the monetized aspects bundled in with it. So I, I'm just prepared to wait it out. But clearly there is a wealth of people out there who are happy to be early adopters and to buy day one DLC and don't see it as being some sort of a problem. It's just what they've become acclimatised to. And surely then the developers and more importantly their, their, their publishers and the people that hold the purse strings can just say, well, th- this is the reason we do it. They lap it up. That's always the difficulty, isn't it? Obviously there are distinctions in taste between age groups. Can you see any particular genres maybe waning or even going extinct as a result of there simply not being sufficient interest in them anymore? Do you know, I'm going to say no, actually, because I think, well, for a start, video games aren't generally that innovative. You know, we haven't come that far in terms of genres than from the time I began playing video games in the 80s. You know, we're still constricted by genre. And I don't see that changing very, very quickly. But also, we, we have the ability to resurrect old mechanics and, and styles of games to put a modern twist on them and to make them popular again. Look at a game, for example, like XCOM uh, that was rebooted a few years ago after almost 20 years. And that's repopularized turn-based strategy games. So now there are tons of turn-based strategy games. Whereas when I was growing up, it was all real-time strategy games. So that just goes to show to me that an old style of video game can be brought back with a modern twist. Look, at space simulators, they'd all but disappeared. That was part of the original pitch of Star Citizen, if you can remember that far long ago. <laughs> that, that space simulators had been forgotten by big publishers that nobody was making them anymore. Well, you know, now there's several on the horizon. Sadly, I can't remember anything about Star Citizen apart from Derek Smart's shouting. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what we've asked is almost just another twist on the is MMO dying question or the are MMOs dying question. Um, 
that, that was asked so many times four or five years ago. And my answer to that has always kind of been the same, is that no, I don't think anything really dies out necessarily. Um, it just it just evolves into something slightly different. And, and I think I agree with Sean in that you're going to see games that, that absorb MMO mechanics, even though they wouldn't be considered classic MMOs. You're not going to have a skill bar full of 50 skills anymore. You're, you're not going to have something that's not at least slightly action-based, but you are going to have things like loot. You are going to have things like leveling. You are going to have, you know, and people take their own twists on those things as well. But um, I think you see these things get incorporated into new ideas and, and new genres are born in that way. When I was growing up during the 70s, I would play board games with my parents, such as Monopoly, things like that. And then as we got older, we then played as a family card games, Cribbage and Brag. Moving on to the 90s when I had my own family, I would play with my son on the SNES or the Mega Drive. Nowadays, I think parents have a far wider choice of what they can choose to do as a family for leisure. Where do you see the state of family gaming at the moment? Well, I, I'm going to jump in because um, I assume I have a little more experience, at least on the... Yeah, the you're in a far better position to comment <laughs> than I am. <laughs> um, honestly, I think it was in a better position a few years ago when the Nintendo Wii was really the big thing. Uh, we, we played... Mm-hmm. I can remember one of the one of the games we had for the Wii when we had one was it was called Family Game Night and it was basically um, a digitized version of those board games that you're talking about. There was a Battleship and there was a, a Game of Life and a Sorry and you know all these things, um, and you'd and you'd play those together with a controller. But as my kids have got, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it's just that my kids have gotten older too and they're not as interested in spending time with mom and dad as they used to be. Um, they're playing different games now, but they're playing the same games as me, which is kind of weird. You know, my oldest son um, will share a a joke on Facebook about Skyrim, and I'll get it, you know, <laughs> because we both played the game, even though we played it separately. So we kind of still have those moments together where we can we can kind of share uh, that experience, but we don't really sit down and play video games together like we used to try and do. It doesn't seem like that that that's not as big of a I don't know. We we've got these separate consoles now. We used to have the one console, and we we've we reached the point in life where we have more than one console in the house, and we've got you know separate PCs that we game on. So uh, I don't know. There's just not a lot of crossover there. Um, they're they're much more into the action-oriented games. Local Wolf is a big racing games fan. He loves to drive cars all over the place, and I'm still more kind of on the slower-paced RPG side of things. So we don't. We don't do a lot of cross-gaming together, multiplayer-type gaming, but we still kind of share the experience in that we, we play the same game separately sometimes. Do you feel that maybe with family gaming, it's like, it's like Disney World, there's a finite window for it, depending on your children's age group? Yes, I, I really do think that's true, um, because I, w- I, I wouldn't say that they don't play multiplayer games, but they're playing them with their friends more than, yeah. more than that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good comparison, Roger. I think that's that's a, there's a lot of truth in that. Like I said, 14 and 16 are, are the age of my two oldest boys, and they're just not really all that interested in in spending a whole lot of time with mom and dad. You know, they're trying to they're trying to expand their social circles, and they're they're testing you know their ability to be out there in the world, and those things are interesting to them now. And I understand that, so that's that's great for them. But uh, that's just kind of the way it goes. That's that's called growing up. 
Well, my granddaughters are two years, three months now, and I am fully expecting gaming to be introduced first as a learning tool and then later on as a social activity and I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm going to get involved in that A because I want to and B because you know I seem to be amenable to those sort of things so um, I'm very interesting I've got an opportunity hopefully in the um, you know immediate future to experience a lot of things from a different perspective because my granddaughters will be growing up in a world where gaming is still a very accessible mainstream commonplace thing and both their parents have gamed in the past although at the moment they don't have any time for that they're too busy earning a crust and doing parent things you know um i do babysit my nephew from time to time and he's uh nine years old nine years old going on ten and one of the only things that we really have in common is, is video games that he likes video games so he tends to come over to my house and say oh can i play on your computer and i say yeah sure so I pull up my Steam library of 250 games and I realise that there's sort of nothing for him to play. Not because I've got a library full of gory adult games, but because everything I've got is just boring for a child. <laughs> you know, like he, he doesn't want to play Europa Universalis, you know? He doesn't <laughs> want to learn to play Crusader King. He doesn't want to play anything that's going to involve reading or learning something complicated. He wants something where he can push the buttons and something will happen. And, you know, I just can't really offer him that. Yeah, I suppose that is a clear example of what we're discussing isn't it this sort of stark difference of what it's like to be at different ends of the spectrum yeah returning to this an original premise that you've got this group of gamers that were there on the off from the outset and they're now sort of in their 30s and they and they still feel that they are the focal point of the industry well they might be to a degree but I, surely as they get older Every time they advance by a decade, there's, there's going to be they're going to be less of the focus of the gaming industry. I mean, certainly by the time that they hit pension age and retire, are they still going to be the darling of the game industry, or are the game industry going to turn around and say, "Ah, look, aging population, whole new demographic to cater to, and bring out a completely set of bespoke products targeting the needs of those individuals?" The answer, as always, is if it makes money, they're going to do it. So if the market's there, who knows? Maybe, like you say, maybe it'll be a grey pound thing. And uh, pensioners will spend the most money on video games. I, I don't know why, but I'm thinking of those games that are there to improve your memory and sort of stuff yeah. like that, you know. Well, I, I agree with Sean. If they're smart, they'll, they'll at least create a niche in that direction because I don't know if, if you guys have the same situation over there but the for a while my my oldest son was really interested in model trains but over here if you try and get into the hobby of model training it's almost financially impossible to do for a kid because all of the people who are pouring money into that hobby are retire age they, they remember trains from when they were little kids and they pour all kinds of money into this hobby and that drives the prices up because they'll pay them you know, so it's yeah. it's at a point where if you're a little kid and you want to get into model training, it's it's really very difficult to do. But I, I think the point I was trying to make there was that retirees have all this money, and they're gonna re they're gonna have this nostalgia that they carry with them. 
Um, so there's going to be, a, I would think there, there's going to be a market there for video games when, you know, when I get to that point and hopefully when, uh, when Roger, when you get to that point as well. Uh, so maybe, maybe the developers will turn their attention to that, that way a little bit and maybe develop some games that are, continue to develop games that are going to be interesting to us. I can remember during the late 80s when in the UK the video boom was at its height. A movie would come out in the summer. You would have to wait sometimes 12 months or more before it then became available on VHS for rental and then have to wait a further six months for that then to come out on retail VHS. And yet what we've seen in recent years is an acceleration of this process. The fact that now you can go and see what's out at the moment in the movie theatres. You can go and see It or um, Kingsman 2, whatever's out. And within two to three months, it will be available on DVD, Blu-ray. Might even be out on video on demand because there's a premium paid now for streaming companies to actually get their hands on these movies before they actually come to physical media. And it's just this gap is getting smaller and smaller. And quite a lot of the smaller movie producers and independent studios are just saying, look, we've done our research. People that want to go to the movie theatre to see a movie will do so. People that want to buy it will buy it. People that just want to rent it and watch it to say that they've watched it will do so. Why don't we just do simultaneous cross-platform same-day release and it will work? And there's been a few films in the UK where they've done this. And because these were small niche market films, I think that's an important qualifying point, it didn't appear to do any harm. They made their revenue. Furthermore, they got their revenue much much quicker because there wasn't this staggered release and life cycle and i was just thinking i'm quite interested in this because i've seen a decline in shall we say audience behavior and for me now going to the movie theater which is something that i used to hold in great esteem i don't feel it's quite the same experience unless i'm going to a very expensive upmarket west end movie theater and i was just wondering how would such a proposal, a same-day cross-platform release, how would that impact upon you? Would that be something that would be good for you and your family and you and yours? Or do you take the attitude that cinema is art and it needs to be seen in a movie theatre? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is I'm not sure I would ever go to a cinema again. I mean, I only really go to the cinema because I desperately want to see that film when it comes out. So maybe I'd fall into the nightmare demographic for the cinemas. I imagine that's the main objection to this, is the cinemas say that they would lose money. Well, that seems to be the objection from the bigger studios, yet the, the market research seems to show that it doesn't. My sister, like me, reveres cinema, enjoys it greatly, and she says she will never stop going. But then, I will make that caveat again, she works in London, therefore she will go to one of the larger cinemas in London. And it's not like the multiplex outside your hometown. People are going there because they really want to see the film. So you tend to have a good standard of audience behaviour, 
very little noise, cinemas are clean, it's not an issue. So you, you get a good cinematic experience, you pay a premium because you're in central London, as opposed to those negative experiences that you can have from time to time when you go to the, um, you know, the, the, the outlying uh, multiplex. So I'm just curious because if my sister's saying she will still go, she will still go. So they're not going to lose revenue from her. Yeah, I think that's the question is, is, is there, is there crossover in those, in those different demographics of people who are going to go to the theater versus watch it on Netflix versus buy the Blu-ray? Is there, is there crossover or are those separate channels of people, you know, because I, I can understand the rationale because for, for example, for Marvel movies, they're going to get my money when I go to the theater because I, t I take my whole family to go and then they're probably going to get it again when I buy the Blu-ray. So for, for mm -hmm. me, you know, for that, for, for me, the customer, that's, it's good that they stagger those releases because I'm probably going to do both. Um, because by the time the Blu-ray comes out, I've forgotten enough about the movie that I want to see it again. But I think for a majority of people, there's not as much crossover as you would think. I think the people who are going to go the, to the theater are going to go no matter what. The people who are going to buy the Blu-ray are not the same people that are going to the theater. The people who are watching it on Netflix are not the same people that are doing either one of those first two things. So I, I, I don't know that they would really lose money. I, th I think you got to take a, a business-minded approach and say, let's get to as many channels as possible. Let's go ahead and release this thing. And, and it can still be an event. I mean, if you, want, if you want the release of your film to be an event, that's something that people talk about. It can still be an event, maybe even more so if you release it on a multi- uh, platforms at the same time because now you've got people tweeting about it and talking about it who are doing other things besides going to the theater on opening night where you live brax is it an easy evening out to go to the movie theater or is it a bit of a hike is it uh, how convenient is it for uh, it's yeah that's family? a good question it's not incredibly convenient it's probably about a half hour drive but i mean uh, that's probably not much different than somebody who lives in a big city and has to drive across town in traffic or catch a cab. Um, the, the the biggest difference for me was I, I kind of stopped going to the theater more when, when I had a lot of little kids that I had to herd around <laughs> and keep track of and then, you know, pay full price for to get into the theater and ended up being a $50, you know, evening on the town. Um, that's when I started kind of swaying away from the theater more than just the distance from my house. Going off a little bit left field here, but a thought just crossed my mind. Television sets are getting cheaper. Screens are getting bigger. Does that in itself act possibly as a, a, a one of the reasons why people feel maybe less inclined to go to the actual cinema itself? It's like, well, I've got a decent enough screen here in my own lounge and I can pause and fix myself a snack and not have to mortgage my house to pay for the right, snack. Right, yeah. That's, that's the big impediment for me is the, is the price of the snacks. But, but yeah, you're right. It's easier to replicate, uh, well, not replicate, but mimic a cinema experience at home with high-quality surround sound systems and good television systems. And as you say, you, you can pause and play whenever you want. One of the factors here is what your relationship with film is, whether you just see it as an amusing diversion, a disposable piece of entertainment, or whether you do take it slightly more seriously and I think people who might know me <laughs> might have realized by now that um, I, I do enjoy cinema I'm more of a fan than a casual viewer and so for me I've always been brought up to feel that cinema is special and that therefore the place to experience it has traditionally been 
in the movie theatre, particularly in the 70s when you still had single screen movie theatres with balconies and in some places even with a Wurlitzer organ at the front. It was a very sort of unique communal experience. And I like to have that experience if I'm going somewhere like the British Film Institute in central London because then you know that when you go to see something it's filled with fans like yourself who are going to sit there in silence focusing on the film as opposed to sending a text or FaceTiming or WhatsApping their friends or or sitting there eating a a, a, a half a hog. (laughs) <laughs> and, and drinking, you know, several gallons of of, of soda. It's it, it. I like going to the cinema when you get that sort of experience. The company of people who who venerate cinema as much as you do. But again, when I go to see stuff locally, I, I get noisy audiences. Or even if it's not the audiences, I get cinemas that are so lacklustre in their technical presentations, films shown out of focus in a wrong ratio. I've had fire alarms go off numerous times in the middle of a performance where they've just thrown you out, called the fire brigade, there hasn't been a problem, and then they've just given you a a freebie ticket and said, come back tomorrow. And that, to me, erodes the the requirement for you to go to the cinema, the fact that you can have a good experience or you can have a very poor experience. Yeah, I suppose what you're talking about really is uh, the death of cinema as an event in itself. Mm-hmm. I suppose I, I, I kind of feel like that. Like going to the cinema used to be a, like a very exciting event growing up. You know, it was the sort, of, sort of the dream activity of what that you might do on a weekend with a friend on a lazy, rainy Saturday, that you might scrape together five pounds for a cinema ticket. Whereas uh, now if I go to the cinema, I'm going because I want to see the film, I want to get in, I want to see the film, and I want to leave, and I want to do so spending as little money as possible and interacting with as few people as possible. Which rather flies in the face of the, of the sort of attitude of filmmakers like Christopher Nolan and um, M. Night Shyamalan, who both said recently that they feel that the cinema is a special place and that there is a shared experience that is quite unique there. Um, Christopher Nolan also got a bit snippy with um, Netflix because they were producing films that were then getting entered into the Cannes Film Festival, but they weren't really getting theatrical releases. They were just then obviously being shown on Netflix. Well, no, that's hardly surprising because they were made by Netflix. And there was this rather unpleasant element of sort of intellectual snobbery that sort of got trotted out. But um, it's a question really of market forces trumping culture and art and from what we've seen isn't it usually market forces that win yeah i i'm trying to remember back to to my own theater experiences sean i agree when when i was a kid that was that was the epitome i think we saw return of the jedi in the theater and that was one of the best childhood memories of my entire life it was like that was what I had waited for years for and it was just fantastic my family was there you know we we had the I know people don't like the Ewoks anymore but when I was a kid the Ewoks were cool okay uh, we had the Ewoks <laughs> um, we had we had all kinds of stuff going on the the special effects the the surround sound everything was fantastic then when I got to become a teenager the the movie theater was more of a social experience than it was 
a movie experience, you know, and we had a, we had a local small town movie theater where all the teenagers gathered. And once you got past a certain age, say, I don't know, maybe 17 or 18, you didn't even go there anymore because you knew it was just going to be full of these, these kids from high school that were not even watching the movie. And nowadays I'm kind of in the, I'm kind of in the camp of Roger. I'd rather see something in absolute silence and, and uh, pristine quality than anything else. So I kind of, I've gone through different stages of my life of, of how the theater experience has changed for me. I do think, Roger, as you said, there, there is perhaps with some of this stuff an element of snobbery. That, that maybe people are romanticizing the cinema in the same way that people might romanticize the theatre. Yeah, definitely. I can understand Christopher Nolan taking such a, a view because of the films that he makes and the circles that he moves in. He, he hasn't been to the view cinema at Chatham and seen how crap it is. <laughs> Uh, and gone in there on a midweek afternoon and there's a, a bunch of people at the back of the cinema who are actually trading. They've actually got merchandise and they're actually trading and taking phone calls and trading. And it's just sort of like, you know, hello, Mr. <laughs> Nolan, where's your art now? It, 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 it does get a bit frustrating. I, I, I appreciate that cinema tries to do things to counter this. I, I, my local cinema has mother and baby screenings um, that they have uh, popular films with, 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 with subtitles and um, all sorts of other um, aids to help people who are visually impaired or audio impaired. That They have autistic friendly um, screenings, etc. See, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of be as sort of um, encompassing as they can be and, and cater to sort of different groups, etc. But I. The fact that you can now have a 4K 60-inch screen in your lounge if your lounge is big enough and watch a, f a movie that's literally only been released in the movie theatres eight weeks previously, I mean, that's pretty good. And if you can do that on the, the same day of its theatrical release, yeah, you might have to pay a premium to, to access that from home, but you're not having to pay the travel costs to go there. I, I can just see level-headed practical people who have to juggle families and meal times and other logistical problems just saying okay we will do that do you think it's going to become a consumer expectation i mean it just seems like with you know the advent of of netflix and anything on demand any on-demand entertainment people are demanding hence the name their entertainment as soon as they can get it. I mean, entire seasons of things are released simultaneously now, and that was unheard of a few years ago because, you know, there was this this idea that you had to string the audience along for an entire season period of time in order to keep them engaged. And and now that is all kind of changing. It seems like that consumer expectation would, would reach a point at some point in time where they would demand to have all of this stuff released simultaneously. I think so, definitely. I, I think um, people have adapted to this change and it's one of the few changes that both old and young have adapted to because in the Peril household we like to binge view and you know, I'm jolly cross that the new Star Trek Discovery is going to be piecemeal released episode by episode as opposed to the whole season not being made available. And I can just see... The, the shift in viewing habits and, and, and customer expectations just building up a sufficient head of, head of steam that eventually it just twists the arms for, for straightforward 
financial reasons. They, they'll have to do it. And I can possibly see a situation where maybe, I mean, apparently, hasn't it? It's been a bad year for blockbusters and, and tentpole movies at the movie theatres this summer. And um, they reckon that potentially, if this continues, you could even see chains going under of, of movie theatres. And maybe we will move to a point where there will still be theatres out there, but it will be a far more niche market it will be possibly pitched at a slightly more luxury end because the norm will be just stay at home and watch it. Well, I couldn't help but notice the last time I went to the cinema that they don't have seem to have diversified the kind of things that they show there. As in, they don't just show films there. I know for a fact that a friend of mine went to our local cinema to watch uh, an esports tournament. Mm-hmm. They show boxing events there. They show concerts they seem to show live screenings of all sorts of things now. Oh, yeah, plays and opera and stuff like that. Yeah, and that that's new, right? Yeah. So maybe they're trying to diversify. It'd be interesting to see if, it's, if, if it works or whether it is too little too late and people are just becoming more and more attached to viewing from their couch. I must admit, maybe this is again an age thing, I feel less disposed now towards going out unless I have to. <laughs> No, I 100% agree. Like, it's a no-brainer for me. Even if it was, say, seven ninety nine, eight ninety nine, for a new release, that's much more reasonable than going all the way to town in the pouring rain and spending £30 for the two of you to watch a film. This is a subject that I'm sure myself, or probably all of us have talked on in the past on various podcasts, be it this podcast or other podcasts, etc. Early adopters, pre-order culture. I think as you get older, you tend to move away from it. Although I'm now going to contradict myself and say that I did pre-order Shadow of War purely because I enjoyed the previous game so much and I just thought I want to play that on release. But most games, by and large now, I don't feel disposed towards paying up front. I much prefer to them to come out, get patched, let other people shout and scream and holler about them, and then a year later pick up the Game of the Year edition at a third of the cost and have a game that is... Yeah, far more functional. I mean, the, the classic example at the moment is No Man's Sky. It's a year old. It's up to patch, what, 1.6 now, something like that? And from what it would appear, it is now somewhere near approaching the game that was promised to everyone. Um, yet, because we're the Bar Humbug Brigade, or I'm assuming that we are the Bar Humbug Brigade because of our ages... There is probably quite a lot of people like us who, who, who don't necessarily decide to, to go all in immediately. Yet there is still more than enough players who are happy to do that. And they will cough up and pay for the day one DLC. Two lots of players now that live completely on the different end of a game's life cycle. And is it always going to be that way? Or... Are they going to... Is there going to be a shift between the two? I mean, where do you stand on these things? And and where do you feel 
it's going, do you think there's going to be any changes to the status quo? Or do you reckon it will remain just broadly split between those who do and those who don't? Is there a third way, is what I'm saying? Well, I think it might be an expectations thing a little bit, like we talked about earlier with the younger generation. I think uh, pre-order culture is definitely worse than it was before. Uh, I, you know, personally, it's exceptionally rare that I'll ever pre-order a game. I, I pre-ordered the latest Zelda game uh, three days before it was out, just because I wanted it when it came out. But you know, by that point, the the, the critics were in. You know, the reviews were in. Everybody said it was a brilliant game, so that didn't feel like a risky pre-order. But uh, I'm not a big fan of complicated tiers of pre-orders for video games because I, I just I don't want to have to read a, sp- a spreadsheet basically to understand what I'm buying when I want to buy a video game. And you know, on the face of it, it, it seems to me that a pre-order is almost never a good deal for you. Because you don't even know if the game is going to be good. It might be terrible. I know know people who pre-order video games when there is nothing that exists of that video game apart from the words on on a web page. Literally, there's been games where they've announced it's now available for pre-order at E3 and their web page is just the title of the video game with a link to pre-order. And people buy that. Yeah, that is a bridge too far for me. I would need a little bit more bait than just a poster or a graphic. Yeah, I, I'm trying to figure out where I fit on this, on this scale. I guess I, I think most of the time, I would much prefer to wait, and catch the game of the year edition. Now I, I, I'm a little disappointed. I, I waited quite a while on The Witcher Three, and I never did get. I did get it at half price, but I didn't get the whole. Uh, DLC content packs and all that with it. I only got the base game at half price. So so that was good. And so I'm playing the same game that everybody else has played. But I think what, I, what I've noticed is that you do miss out on that kind of initial period of excitement that everybody has when a game is first released and everybody's talking about it and everybody is sharing their experience with everyone else. And, oh, yeah, I just hit that, that point in the game last night too. And that is, you know... I, that's the kind of thing that you miss out on by by waiting and saving some money. I don't know if that's worth spending the additional money up front or even the pre-orders if those are available. But um, it, it is something that you know if if you're watching your Twitter feed closely, like I tend to do sometimes, and and all of the people that you that you trust and interact with are talking about the same thing, and you have nothing to add you kind of feel a little bit helpless at that point. You're like, well, I, I guess that's the price I pay for being, you know, a tightwad. But um, I, I think in, in most cases, it doesn't bother me at all to wait maybe a year, year and a half to, to get something at half price or at a greatly reduced rate. And, and it usually ends up being a, a pretty good deal for me. Oh, it's almost always, you know, a good financial deal to wait. But, I, you know, I have to admit that I do have a weakness for getting slightly caught up in the positivity around a game when it launches. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but if, if enough people are saying that a game is brilliant as soon as it launches, I, I might want it. Like, I, I just bought Destiny 2, and that, on the face of it, is not a game that I would ever like or play. But because so many people were saying it was brilliant, I thought, well, I'm going to pick it up. And, you know, I'm enjoying it. But, without a shadow of a doubt, I've made a foolish financial decision 
because I bet when they release an expansion pass, and they're going to, I could pick that game up in two years' time for the same price I paid for Destiny 2 with all of the add-ons. But of course, by that point, I would have missed out on the initial excitement and the player numbers would have greatly reduced. I think that is very much a tangible thing that does influence people. The A is the game, B is the experience and the sense of community. Because I must admit, for the last week, most of my Twitter timeline has been people waxing lyrical about Destiny 2. You know, and you think to yourself, oh, I wish I could be part of that. You suddenly drop back into a sort of child mentality where you, you want the reassurance and comfort of being part of the herd, part of the social group, part of the in crowd, as it were. And, you know, it happens to me. I, every now and then, will fixate on a game that I know I'm going to be rubbish at, won't be able to play. It's not pitched to me. It's outside of my skill set, but... I just know that it's going to be popular and I want to be part of it. And earlier on this year, around about springtime, it was For Honor. I thought, that looks good. And a little voice at the back of my head said, you'll be shit at it, Rog. And another voice says, no, no, it'd be cool. It'd be really great to hang out and hit people with big sticks and swords and poke people and whatnot. And you just think, yeah, and then I bought it. I bought the deluxe version of the game with the season pass. And within about a fortnight, it became abundantly clear that I was possibly the worst player in the world of it. Except there was one person that I killed, so they were obviously worse than me. That's exactly the sort of game that I would pick up, play for about eight hours, realise it was terrible at, and then never play it again. But you're dead right. If you pick that up 18 months, two years later, the servers will not necessarily have so many people playing them. Certainly the casual players will have been and gone. And you are just going to be left with people who've been playing this solidly for two years and and, and that means you'll have even less fun playing because you'll just get absolutely creamed by them right yeah i'll admit that i i uh and i think everybody knows this by now but back in however many years ago it was i i ordered a ship for star citizen i bought one um i thought wow a space game that sounds cool you can have your own ship i'm, I'm gonna buy into this i dropped 60 dollars, which is about the price that i would pay on a new game on a ship and it had, I mean, in, in some ways it's kind of paid off because because I can I can jump in and look and see what they're doing. But it's it's I'm not the type of person that plays a game when it's in alpha mode and collects all kinds of things, knowing that it's going to be wiped out later on. Um, and and I guess the other thing that it, it did buy me was the the right to complain about the way Star Citizen is going because I actually have something invested in it. But um, yeah, it's. On the surface, it seems like a really foolish thing to do, but there are some intangibles that come along with it, I guess. I mean, it, it is interesting. It, it's got me invested in the game. I actually kind of pay attention when new updates come out, whereas if I didn't have anything invested in the game at all, I probably would just, you know, blow it off and, and forget about it. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, in, in most cases, I don't do that, but for some reason, that game just looked like it was going to be so amazing when they first started talking about it, and, and I got sucked into it, too. Well, yeah, I think Star Citizen's obviously a really extreme example of a phenomenon, I think, that does develop around a sort of pre-order culture. And that is investment, as you say. I, th- I think what you're describing, in a way, is a feeling of like... It's almost like back in a sports team, isn't it? It's sort of something to keep up with and read the emails from time to time, you know, check the forums, see what's going on. And, uh, you know... Obviously, you're following the development of a game from the very beginning, so it's years and years and years away. But it, it seems to me that some people 
kind of take it too far and, and they invest too much. I mean, maybe financially in some circumstances, almost certainly with Star Citizen. Uh, but certainly em emotionally, I think people invest too much. And I think that always leads to a sense of disappointment for them because it comes out and it's it might be good, but at the end of the day, it's just a video game. And I think that maybe contributes to an, an angry video game culture. Well, it's just something that doesn't exist in other industries, is it? Early access pre-order well maybe pre-orders and stuff i mean you can go and pre-order a paperback book by a well-known writer that's coming out but but early access it's like you, you wouldn't go around and knock on stephen king's doors and demand to read each night the latest chapter that he's just working his way through or it's like booking a ticket to go and see a concert by a band and you go to the stadium and they're still building it and the band are still recording the songs and they're not sure if the drummer's going to get out of rehab in time. Do you know what I mean? It's just, if you try and look at it through the prism of any other industry, it just seems so ludicrous. Yet, because of the uniqueness of what they are peddling in the gaming industry, they can get away with it because it's a virtual product, not a physical product. Yeah, so your original question was, you know, is there a third option? I'm not sure. I'm not. Sh I'm, I'm kind of hoping that the pre-order thing is dying down a little bit. I haven't seen as much about it, but maybe that's because, you know, mentally I know I'm not going to be involved in a lot of pre-orders, so I just don't pay attention. But it's it seems like that you know pre-order alpha access type stuff is not quite as early access. I guess is the term they use nowadays. It's not quite as prevalent as it was maybe a year and a half, two years ago. So I'm, I'm, maybe I'm hoping that it's going to die down a little bit. I, I feel like, you know, being someone who's in IT, and, and I know, Roger, you, you might have similar experiences. Alpha and beta testing have very specific definitions within the IT world for the most part. So, so when, when you bring those concepts into video gaming and you completely change what they mean, and, and, and then you, you mislead uh, your customer base by letting them think that, you know, they're actually, oh, yeah, you're not being part of testing. You know, you're, this is just you getting an early peek. Yeah, you are participating in their testing and their feedback. They're, they don't have to, to spend money on as many testers if they release the, te the testing early and, and put a little uh, legal footnote in there saying we cannot be held responsible for whatever it is, you know, happens to you while you're testing this game for us. Because th that's that's a money-saving thing for them, right? They, they can put their... They can put their... It's, it's more than a focus group because you're actually in there with your hands in the game, playing around, providing feedback. And people, like you're, you're right, Sean, people get really, really invested in that and and t probably take it too far. And, and that's at the point, when they get to that point where they're, when they're that invested in it and they're providing that much feedback, that's when they start to have a higher level of expectation as to what they're owed at the end of the day too, right? And this is something that, Roger, you talk about all the time on your podcast. I do. I do. I was just trying to think. I haven't done a podcast for such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> What's a podcast? Yes, exactly. It was getting a bit like that. Um, where you do have some developers who are quite happy to sort of just get paying customers to do a lot of their donkey work, then you've got another group of developers who just seem to dilute the meaning, as you say, of alpha and beta testing, and it's just really a form of marketing. It is just a way of creating a buzz. There are a few games where I've been involved in alpha beta tests and provided feedback, etc. And, and yet the release product, you think, this isn't drastically different. Have you actually made any changes? 
It is curious the way these terms have been effectively bastardised. Going off at a tangent, which is something that we do regularly on this podcast, as we've been discussing this subject, it's just occurred to me, does pre-order culture exist in the mobile game industry? Well, I think they have more of a release and iteration culture, don't they? So it's uh, it's not expressly called early access as far as I'm aware, but you can release something that's far from feature complete and continue to add features as you go along. But, you know, I don't play a lot of mobile games, like I'm sure you guys don't either. Not greatly so. I've dabbled with a few, and what I tend to find is they just arrive and you use them and then they add features to them but you you, you don't pre-order them and, and participate in in testing them and stuff they just sort of manifest themselves might be completely wrong on this it might be because i'm not the world's greatest customer of those sort of products but it just crossed my mind i, I wasn't aware of it having identical business practices as you know console and more to point pc games I th- it seems to me the whole mobile market is a lot more disposable in the way that those games are made and sold because you know they're, they're priced accordingly aren't they even, even games that would you know, there are games that would generally cost you uh, more money to buy on the PC than they do on your mobile because there's only so much money people will pay for a mobile game sure and, and certainly like you say their life cycle and their disposability because there were a couple of games there were again IP related so it's things like there was a couple of Lord of the Ring games that are available on, on the, for, for, for things like you know a, a, an 8 inch tablet and I found out about them and they literally got removed from the store on the day that I was looking for them because it was like oh there's, there, it's there and then I come back later and it was not and then I remember doing some digging around on some forums just to be told no they've just withdrawn it and you think but it's still a playable game that makes money, nah it's fallen below a threshold, it's gone yeah, like a fashion line at a store. I think that the expectation level is a lot different for a mobile game. That's that's why that they can enter into that uh, that iterative, iterative release cycle that you talked about, Sean. It's it's just people people expect the, a game on a mobile phone to be able to hold their attention for thirty seconds while they're waiting in the line at the bank or whatever. You know, it's it's just a lot different. There's no need to. Um, have pre-order or, or pre-sale or early access or whatever it is on a mobile game because it's just pe- people, I don't know that people would do it. Do they really care? They wouldn't even pay attention to what it said, I don't think. they just download it and use it. But I'm not a mobile gamer either, so that's just me conjecturing. Yeah, I have this weird thing about mobile games where I, I end up buying games for them that I'm just never going to play. Like, um, I bought Broken Sword. Do you remember that? It was like a sort of early noughties point-and-click ad- uh, adventure RPG on, on the PC. It was hugely popular. Uh, I'm not going to play a 20-hour-long point-and-click adventure on my phone. Why would I do that? I would. I don't think I've got so much a prejudice against the medium. I've seen some games done quite well. So I don't think it's the medium. I just find that the business model is more egregious. You play a free-to-play game on the PC, you know at some point you're going to have to pay. And you get so many hours or so many levels or so many zones, and then you know you're going to start hitting that paywall. And it's just a much harder landing on a cell phone game. It's like, I can play, that's it, I can go absolutely no further now. I have been hit really hard over the head with the pay me some money you bastard bat 
The, the thing I find with them is there's just no no window in my life for anything more than, as Brack said, a game that I might play for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's something to, when you're sitting on the toilet or when you're waiting for a bus or when you're standing in line waiting for your friend. It's not, uh, you know, I'm not looking to get invested in uh, in Grand Theft Auto 3. Well, you see, because my life does have lots of long extended periods of sitting around, usually hospital or clinic waiting rooms, and it's either play a game or speak to Mrs. Coltart <laughs> about her shingles. <laughs> Which is why you tend to see also um, the huge, far more handheld consoles are sold in cities, because people commute. Because people who are fiscally prudent, shall we say, and patient, get what they want, they are going to continue to do what they're doing. Because there will be those people that don't just like the games, they like the the excitement of the community that emerges and the buzz of a new game. So they are still going to continue to do what they're doing. I'm just wondering if, if this is ever going to change until maybe there's a legal shake-up, shake because maybe the, the publishers just do something that's a little bit too shady or duplicitous or effectively sell people something that it's not. And I'm just wondering if it only takes one case to set a precedent and then all of a sudden everything has to change because the lawyers got involved. Well, it's a little bit different, but I know there has been some intervention, hasn't there, with Kickstarter? That as far as I'm aware, there is a legal obligation that you do at least attempt to make the product that you said you would make. But of course, then you get into what counts as an attempt. But that's just within the realms of Kickstarter. But I imagine that that is a sign of things to come. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Uh, and I think what it boils down to is for those, those you know, for example... Star Citizen is a good example, and, and the whole Derek Smart stuff that he keeps bringing up. Has the has the service provider provided the service to you that they have promised to provide and that you've paid for? I mean, that's that's kind of the question that it comes down to, right? And to this point, I would say for, for that particular game, the answer would have to be no. And they, they would say, well, we're still working on it. But if, if that ever collapses and we have one of those instances where um, – people have invested a lot of money in in whatever the the service is and it's not provided then we're going to see some really interesting legal action i think and then you're going to see a lot of publishers probably publishers and developers back off of the pre-order thing if if there's any risk at all from a legal standpoint maybe it's a question of we just have to leave this whole issue in the hands of jim sterling as he seems to be slowly but surely fixing the gaming industry (laughs) one problem at a time Well, that seems like a great place to wrap up this, the 175th episode of Contains Moderate Peril, available on all good podcast outlets. Give us a five-star review. I'd like to say thank you very much indeed to my guests, Braxwolf and Sean. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. The Contains Moderate Peril podcast will be back in the not-too-distant future. In the meantime... Thanks very much indeed for listening. Feel free to leave us your thoughts and comments on the show. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Contains Moderate Peril. 
For more information, visit ContainsModeratePeril.com and follow us on Twitter at Moderate Peril.